Hi. Welcome to Home from Home, a journey into elderly care. My name is Nir. Over the pandemic, I've been having conversations with people whose parents have gone into residential care. I wanted to have these conversations because I too have been experiencing what it's like to watch my grandparents go from being independent and adamant that they would never go into a care home to being in supported living. I wanted to find out more about the people in the care system and to see how other people with elderly relatives feel about it because so much of that world happens behind closed doors. I needed to know more. What you're about to hear is the first of a series of three podcasts made from those conversations. We've chosen three very different stories, but you can imagine them like acts of the same play or songs that are part of the same service. If you like, you can scroll through our zine, an illustrated booklet inspired by some of the things that people have said. It isn't a program, but it is something that you can look at digitally Or if you want, you could print it out so you can hold it in your hands whilst you listen to the people's stories. One of the people I talked to was Kathy. I met her on a video call during lockdown. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Not so bad, thank you. And you? Yeah, I'm all right. Surviving. <laughs> it was just three months after her mum had died in a care home. She says that because of the pandemic, they had to make her mum's funeral happen remotely for the people who couldn't be there in person. She says she sent out an order of service, the eulogy, and videos of her brother reading poems and said if you'd like to go somewhere quiet, that would be lovely. So if you would like to go somewhere quiet to listen to Kathy, that would be lovely too. She says it feels like the broad lines of people's stories about witnessing parents go into care can be so universal. It would be very easy to construct a made-up story because the broad headlines are the same for everybody. But, of course, the actual specifics are so very, very different. Here, from Ad Infinitum, is episode one, in a class of her own. dad lived in the house that they had got married into so they got married in 1960 and my mum lived there until 2013 they neither of them were terribly good at house maintenance and um they certainly weren't the most mum was not the, the, the most organized and <laughs> i'm looking around this terrible room sorry mum i'm not either but she just It just was, was, was not great at cleaning and keeping the place in good order. So the first, I guess the first sign was, um, <laughs> was about the five years or maybe the 10 years of can we help with this or maybe we could help you sort out X, Y or Z and, and the two of them resisting that um, massively. 
and then gently suggesting when my dad died that that might be a good time to leave this house that was really crumbling around around my mum and she was adamant that she wouldn't so she stayed on in that house in spite of there being like really dodgy wiring and one socket working in the I mean it was just really appalling so she moved from the reason for telling you that is because she moved from a very decrepit uncomfortable unheated everything falling apart very unhygienic dirty awful house but it was hers into something that wasn't hers but it was a sheltered flat which was as an occupational therapist i couldn't have designed it better it was perfect it was uh it had everything she needed it was clean it was warm it was safe it had a wet room it had it was just right and it's a series of flats that you have a tenancy for has a warden um, but the to access some of the flats, you go inside and down a carpeted corridor, and there are some shared areas. So there's a lounge and a sort of um, sitting dining room where you can entertain or meet, or whatever. Little garden, a little a little hair salon, laundry. It's lovely, really lovely. It's a miracle. It was no, it wasn't a miracle. It was really hard work getting her in there. Anyway, she was not well, not physically well but mentally very able, no, no cognitive problems. And she lived there quite happily. And it meant that she could make new friends. During the first two years two three years that she was there she was there for six and a half years this sheltered flat and um, there was some there were some nice things because it was about a mile and a half two mile two miles from from where this house that she'd always lived in but for my mum Alden to Wrighton which is two miles is like just different worlds you know and uh, there was a woman that she hadn't seen since she'd lived in in Alden and she knew because it's a very northern story of um, this woman was a sort of apprentice dressmaker to the woman who was a friend of my mum's mum who made a wedding dress. I thought my mum would really take to her, but instead my mum was a bit sort of didn't really want to know because that was that was her past in Oldham and she left that past. So it was kind of complicated, but it was full of kind of weird politics and, and it was very fascinating. I mean, these places are fabulous because they pull together people who have got lots in common because they have grown up within a particular area. But education and class-wise, it was interesting because it was, it, it's a housing association. Most people in there are not massively well-educated or particularly wealthy because if they were, they'd probably have a, they'd be paying for a private, slightly posher place. But having said that, because it was one of the nicer ones, there were people who had you know they'd perhaps worked during they weren't all women who'd lived a lancashire um i'm trying not to stereotype but it, it's really difficult because because many of those women did they worked on so my mum she worked on market she worked on kitchen in, in a school kitchen um and there were lots of women who'd done that or who had not worked and had been and, and stayed at home with, with kids but there were also a handful of maybe ex-teachers a uh, couple of nurses so the politics was was quite interesting because they did not quite rub along so 
So, for example, they would have social events in the communal areas. And I guess in the first year or two, my mum tried to get involved with this, but she was very sniffy about bingo. They just played bingo. They would throw a party for any excuse, really, which is great, like St. Patrick's Day or, you know, Easter and somebody's anniversary or a birthday or whatever. And mum used to kind of get her head and go, oh, it was fantastic. But then she would just moan about the fact that the music was all not her kind of music and they would swear a lot mum never swore and they would be swearing a lot and laughing and getting drunk and she she was really unhappy about this and my mum is re- was really weird because she was in this this um social setting where she occupied a very strange space where she kind of placed herself above um many of the people there but the people who were perhaps more educated and, and had a bit more experience and travelled and, you know, they didn't quite include her either. So it was, it, it was not easy for some of the time. The, the, the group that were quite bonded as a quite noisy, use the word vulgar but I found them quite funny I, I quite enjoyed their company but they were quite vulgar um, they didn't really gel with my mum and like I said the ex-teachers and so on they'd have been very sniffy so she, she kind of occupied this strange middling space and then but she did she I'm, I'm making it out like she, she was Billy no mates but she wasn't she had like so she made two three four quite nice good friends so it was it was fine but then this other thing happened, which um, a couple of the friends that she had, um, that she, she judged were, were nice people, good people, um, not, not these common people. <laughs> Inevitably, um, I'm looking down because it's quite, this is quite, I find this really sad. Um, they died because that's the nature of the thing. So she'd gone there when she was, you know, she so she lived there for six and a half years. Like I said, the first two, three, four years, she was quite able to be involved in things. But there'd be people on the latter end of their stay there, and she happened to make friends with people, and the friendship lasted a year, two years. She really cared about them, and I remember talking to my daughter about this. I said, you know, it's really it's heartbreaking because there I am encouraging my mum to make friends and be sociable, but. With each friend she makes, she risks a bereavement and and the reminder of her own trajectory. And that's, that's really sad because what you know the alternative is to do what she in the end did, probably for other reasons as well, but is to not is to not engage and not make friends. Because how many how many new friends can you make knowing that in two, three, four, five years they're going to die? Unless you're very grounded in yourself, which she wasn't. Um, I mean, at my age now, I, I hope, you know, you hope that you, you will find some way of coping. But, you know, I've not been there. And, and, and what I could see was, you know, mum being repeatedly bereaved of friends that she just made. So that, I'd, I'd never thought, I had, that had never occurred to me. But, but it, it was only watching mum in that setting that made me realise what a risk it was each time she made a new friend. So 
she became a bit more isolated in the fifth year. And then the sixth year, she, she didn't really engage very much with the, the people outside of her flat, only in fits and starts, really. But she had a period of delirium um, uh, a year and a half ago-ish. And it was, it was quite out of the blue. So she'd gone from being pretty sharp. So she'd still ring me and remind me of things that I needed to bring on my next visit. Or have you spoken to Peter about X, Y or Z? And a little bit of slowing, a little bit of word finding difficulty, but mostly grand. And then um, th this particular Christmas, she had a catastrophic delirium. And um, by that, I mean she was hallucinating and um bizarre hallucinations lots of comedy scope there but it really wasn't funny it was very you know it was weird and because uh, she wasn't she wasn't distressed by the hallucinations um mostly and they just amused her and in fact almost entertained her but she then she she she, she lost all track of time and she was ill um she went into hospital because she she wasn't safe at all but in the process of her being in hospital because they could find no one reason they wouldn't admit her to a ward so she was on a sort of so this is part of the story of the awfulness now but she was on discharge ward which actually what that means is there's a bay where everybody who's been discharged from one of the wards sits and waits for their ambulance and then there are a couple of other bays that have some beds where people are just waiting for the doctor to say go home, but they're not they're not going to be treated. And this particular place was it had um, very kind of rotating staff, lots of bank staff, the usual kind of story really. No windows, no clocks. In fact, if you wanted to write how to make you or I completely delirious, you would. This is what you would do. Um, not helped to drink, not monitored for food. So everything that could be contributing, just, it was, it was terrible. So what I should say before I say anything else about any other part of this is the individual staff with only one or two exceptions were absolutely kind and as good as they could be. But they were, as you would guess, I'm going to say, they just didn't have the staff, didn't have the resources, blah, blah. So what happened was a social worker was allocated um, to arrange her going home. There was no way. She, she still didn't know who she was, where she was. She now couldn't physically manage anything. So she couldn't put a shoe on because she couldn't work out which way round a shoe goes and whether it goes on her foot or her. She was in a terrible state. So the social worker said, well, we'll get her admitted for respite to a care home. So I said, but respite from what? Said two days before she came into hospital, she, she's a lady who lives on her own. And what I should also say is at various junctures throughout our conversations, my brother and I with, with my mum, it's been, and I'm not going in a care home. So I knew that it would not be right to agree for her to go to a care home because as an occupational therapist I also know the very last thing you do with somebody who's delirious is keep moving them around put them somewhere which is also unfamiliar and so on so eventually I just said right well we'll take her home and we'll organize 24-hour care in her home the health service and social services would not fund any part of it because she wasn't ill 
she had no diagnosis she had about 15 diagnoses of physical ailments so because she didn't have a dementia diagnosis mental health services couldn't help because she didn't have a particular thing that was causing this that was being treated she didn't qualify and partly because she had savings because she'd sold this wreck of a house so uh, it's a lot of money it is a lot of money let's just put full stop seventy thousand pounds or so is a lot of money it's not a lot of money when it's all the money that you've got from 50 odd years in a house that you sold that Peter and I had said that when she gets really, really towards the end, we'll, we'll pay for her being in a nice care home, whatever. However, because she had the 70,000, um, social services wouldn't engage at all tried to organise 24-hour care privately. Most of the conversations went, yes, we can do that. Oh, of course, yes, we can do that. As soon as, and the cost was horrific, but as soon as they found that um, there wasn't anywhere for carers to sleep over, it, it wasn't workable. People who pay for their care privately, uh, here's my mum in the middle again, generally are really rich. Oh, no, no, not really rich. They're, they're comfortable. And, and maybe they still have their own home or a small home that has two or three bedrooms for the grandkids to come and stay. So culturally, the companies are used to being able, quite rightly, for their workers to have time to go and have their, their dinner, to sleep privately away from the person they're caring for. But my mum was living in a housing association, one bedroom flat. So that wasn't available. So there's my mum again in the middle. She had too much money to get something provided through the services but not enough and she wasn't in a position enough to be able to to fit the the, the middle class uh, provision that's that, that most care companies are providing for and the company that we eventually got this set up with they've never they had never done anything like this before so it, it, they were really pulling all the stops out and in fact what I, what I did was I researched what the protocols were for delirium and found that there were two or three places in the country that were really top of the game in how you approach delirium it was all about getting people home it's about reorientation about time uh, enforcing sleep you know making sure that you've got we use bright lights during daytime all that kind of thing so we put together this package with a company uh, and i i put together the care plan it took about three days to start to start getting better. It took about three weeks before we could withdraw the 24 hour and make it withdraw the night sitting. And it took probably two months, three months before she was maybe at 70 to 80 percent of, of what she'd been before the delirium. So tick, job done, great. She even she even went to a couple of games of bingo downstairs and she stayed wellish for a year so she got another year after her delirium so mum died in a care home but i didn't see her at any time while she was in that care home and so my first time of seeing her she died on on april the 19th and i hadn't seen her since april the first april the first and um she'd been in hospital and then into the care home 
the care home was very it must be incredibly hard to work and it's an old victorian rambling several big what would have been very posh houses bit shabby thin narrow corridors and carpets and just just really very very difficult space i so felt for the staff there but despite that it was clean and the staff that i spoke to on the phone all made me feel that it was a very kind and caring place so it was a kind of weird sad warm but but not what you want ending to it all really um so the first time I saw her was after she'd actually died. I got a phone call during the night and uh, she died in the previous half an hour, an hour. They weren't sure because they'd just gone to check on her. She wasn't expected to die. And, um, and so I drove down to, to see her. And the thing that, that really was amazing that, um, I mean, seeing her was strange and sad. and um, yeah, it was strange and sad. One of the things that happened, though, was that one of the, uh, well, I think there was only actually one member of staff on, but when she came in at one point, she was talking to me and she'd asked, she had asked me privately whether, before she was taken away, whether I wanted anything from her body, like her jewellery and so on. And I said, actually, yes, that would, that would be, that would be nice. Um, and when, so when the, the, the night, the, the night sister was, was, um, removing those and just arranging my mum in the bed she was talking to her so in the same way as you would I, I've worked in the, in the NHS for 30 years and, and the same way that you would talk to anybody alive and explain what you're doing and why and introduce yourself and all of the things she she did that with my mum even though my mum was dead and I found that a real surprise I'd never although I'd worked in the NHS I wasn't around the immediacy of death very much um and so I'd, I had never seen that and it wasn't what I expected but it felt really incredibly tender and kind and 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 deeply moving and I was thinking about why it felt so moving and, and I suppose what it did without trying was it told me that although I hadn't been able to be there during the short time she'd been in that care home, she had been met with kindness. So in other words, I was witnessing an incredibly kind, tender act that, that you, you couldn't fake that. It was beautiful. And, um, and it, it, was, it was both very heartwarming for that moment, but it was also really heartwarming for what then... I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't realise this, it's only thinking about it afterwards, but why it made me feel so good was that it just conveyed how caring and kind certainly that individual was, and therefore it was beautiful. From Home, Journeys into Elderly Care was produced and composed with an original a cappella score by Jennifer Bell with me, Nir Paldi and generous contributors Kathy, Paul and Lizzie and was an ad infinitum production 
with support from Arts Council England.